John chapter 1, we had the erecting and entering of the tabernacle. We had the prologue about Jesus, about him being the eternal word. We then had the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's baptized by John the baptizer. And he is attested to by John. We looked at him as... The, we looked at Jesus as the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so as we were walking through the tabernacle, we had this sort of idea of coming into the tabernacle and the, t- the tabernacle being built, Jesus coming in, the idea of him of entering, and we enter by faith into the tabernacle. And then there is this idea of the sacrifice for our sins, and the altar signifies that in the tabernacle. And then there is afterward a washing for service, this, this holiness, this this being set apart and cleansed. And oftentimes we'll kind of collapse those together. We think of sacrifice and cleansing, and we sort of go, okay, I'm cleansed of my sin in the sense of justification. But we forget sometimes that a part of the idea of cleansing is the idea of the removal of the filth, not just in a legal sense, but the removal of wickedness, the removal of the evil there, and there's sort of the healing idea that occurs. So when we get to the... the bronze basin, the brazen laver of water. That This bronze bowl that's filled with water in the tabernacle, it has to do with the idea of washing, a sort of baptizing that exists, so the idea can be that you can serve with holiness having been cleansed from filth. So the sacrifice removes legal guilt and so Christ's death for us pays for our sins. But then there is this idea of being holy and having sin removed from the inward man and us being able more and more to be put to holy service. So, we deal with the first sign being at a wedding that Jesus gave, and it was taking the water in ceremonial water pots, these stone pots used for ceremonial washings, and he transforms, by a miracle, that water into wine. And so we talked about the connection there between the idea of the old baptisms that were constant, that were over and over again, and uh, the idea that they were used in the priestly service and in many other holiness rituals, and that's replaced. The renewal ritual we have now is the Lord's Supper, and so the wine being there points to that, and it reminds us of the blood of Christ not being only the basis for our justification, but also we are cleansed by his blood. There's there's a, a procuring of benefits as adopted sons by Christ's death. And so his blood buys for us holiness. It buys for us fruits of the Spirit. It buys for us gifts that we might serve holy unto the Lord. And so that's a part of the benefit set that's purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have that. We increasingly take possession of it. And in taking possession of it in this life, we grow in faith, and that's how we grow in the possession of these things. Now, from this act at the wedding in Cana, Jesus goes from there, and like everybody, immediately after the wedding, you go to the temple to throw some tables over. Right? That's what everybody else did. So, that's what Jesus does. So he goes to the temple. Now, one thing I want to point out to you, the cleansing of the temple that occurs, in John, the cleansing of the temple occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, It occurs towards the end of his ministry, close to his death in the the last week. And so the question is, well, which one was it? And the answer is both. I believe there are two events where he does this. 
They didn't learn the lesson the first time. He comes back the second time, flips them over again. Now, other people say John is not as concerned about the timeline because John is focused upon doctrine. And so he's sort of, you look at the structure of John and he's focused upon teaching doctrines because he's focused on the divinity of Christ. So there's not as much concern about the timeline. And I think that that's true. John is not nearly as concerned about the timeline and the events in terms of um, helping us to see where things fit chronologically. But I also think it's abundantly clear in this little section that this is closely tied to this event at Cana in terms of time. So I think that there are two cleansings of the temple. Um, So I would put that forward. That's my understanding. And uh, there are other people whom I respect who hold to the view that simply John is less concerned about the chronology, which I agree with, and that this is just a putting of this in a convenient place locationally for teaching about a doctrinal set. So John certainly does group things to teach about doctrines. He groups events around doctrines that they are useful to teach about. Uh, but I still think that this is a sec- there's, there's two cleansing events in the temple. Okay. Now, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So that gives us a sense of here are people that were probably with him at the feast, which again emphasizes at the wedding feast, which emphasizes again that it was probably a family friend or a close family member. And so we have Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And we know from other places that his brothers did not yet believe. And so there's a differentiation between his brothers and his disciples. And he teaches elsewhere that his true brothers are the ones who believe. And so that idea of being who are the brothers of Jesus is picked up on, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but in the Scots Confession, there's an interesting line that none of the other confessions say this, none of the other Reformed confessions say this, but it talks about us as being brothers of Christ. And I think that that's a delightful thing to realize that we are heirs, we're adopted sons, and so all of us, men and women, all of you, have a standing legally as brothers, and so you're heirs. And so that idea of being brothers with him. He is the firstborn legally, he is not born in terms of his divinity, right? He is eternal. But he is the firstborn legally in that he has the double portion. Now, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Okay, so what are these people doing? Why are they selling oxen, sheep, and doves? Well, those are the sacrifices. Imagine you have to come from all over Judea, or maybe you're coming from someplace across the Mediterranean, and you need to offer a sacrifice at the temple. Would it be convenient for you if somebody were selling an animal there? Or would you prefer, you know, when I left Crete, I thought to myself, I'd like to bring a bull, and we'll just ship that with us. Like, Which would be more convenient to you? Having to bring the bull along, or being able to buy one at Jerusalem when you get there? Well, obviously buying one. And in fact... If you read the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it talks about the idea of, you know, if you're too far away, you don't have to bring your animals as tithe or anything like that. You can just bring cash and you can transport or you can go and buy things for sacrifice. So that idea is, is explicitly, and it's obvious anyways, laid out in the Bible. So what's the problem here? The problem is they're in the temple. If they'd had a stall right outside of the temple... Fine, 
great. Jesus would walk on by. They're in the temple. That's the problem. They're in the temple. So people selling oxen and sheep and doves. Now oxen, or bulls, the most expensive sacrifice. Sheep, the middle class sacrifice. Doves, the sacrifice that you see from Jesus' parents, the poor. In Luke, it's what you read. This is the sacrifice they bring. Doves. So we know he was born into poverty. The money changers, what are they about? A lot of money from the ancient world had pictures of false gods on it. Also, a lot of coins were made by the Federal Reserve, and so they were debased. So what they would do, people would take these coins, and they would, in order to try to con the people that they were paying, right? the, the governments were typically the ones that were makers of coins at this point. Historically, coins were told in the Bible, the use of silver and gold for coinage was invented by the merchants. That's what it says in Genesis. Money does not have its origin in government. Government takes control of money because it's a useful point of power to control people. But Genesis, when, when Abraham is buying land, he talks about how he buys it with the merchants' money, the money of the merchants, the money that comes from the merchants. The merchants are the ones that realized the value in figuring out things that were efficient to carry and transport value. So currency is a result of trade and not a result of governments. The debasing of currency is a type of fraud. If you take a silver coin and you go, I can give you a silver coin and I can buy something with it, but you know what? I can clip off edges of it and you might think it's a full coin. That's one way of reducing the value. Take the shavings across a few coins. If you can take 5-10% off of every coin, eventually every 20th or every 10th coin you can melt a new coin. And if you're going to make that one with 10% less or 5% less, you can also actually do that even more frequently. right? So if you're trying to steal value, but some people catch on to that. And in fact, what you find is people start weighing coins and the bigger the purchase, the more likely it is that they're going to catch you trying to clip off the edges of it. They're going to go, hey, this doesn't equal the weight that you're supposed to pay me. So what you start to find is people mixing in cheaper or inferior metals. So the debasing of currency is principally the mixing of base metals with precious metals, and therefore you debase the precious metal. And so this idea of the debasing of currency is one of the things that the temple was worried about. They only wanted to have a particular type of coin that they could accept for two reasons. One, it would not be debased because the Romans were very good at debasing currency. And two, it would not have any idols on it. So for those two reasons, they wanted to have coins be exchanged. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And it's particularly around the time of the temple tax, when every man was supposed to give a flat payment that was supposed to occur to help to maintain and support the temple. And so that's what these guys were there for. Um, And the times that are most convenient to pay the temple tax are during the feasts, the annual feasts where people are required to be there anyways. And so that's how God had ordered it. And so these are what these people are there for. So it's convenient to have a money changer there so you can get the type of currency you need at the time that you need it. And it's convenient to have people selling oxen, sheep, and doves near the temple so you can use them rather than having to transport them. And these people, if they're doing honest labor, they should be 
able to make a profit. So what happens is, a lot of people get to this text, and they go, Jesus was real mad. You know why he was mad? He was mad because the money changers were making money off of changing money. Don't be a money changer. You can't do things for people that make life more convenient for a profit, because that's sin. And let's not apply that at all to any other area of life, but only to things involving currency. So we can feel bad about bankers and feel angry with them. Okay, the other one, the oxen and the sheep and the doves, these were, they were charging high prices. These things, they were charging sometimes two, maybe three times the rate that you could buy them in some place, pick a place. And so therefore, these guys are price gouging. Well, you can search the pages of scripture all you want. You will find no sin called price gouging. Oh, wait. Start flipping. You won't find it. What is price gouging? Price gouging is whatever price I don't like. That's what price gouging is. Here's the kind of nonsense that you find when people try to regulate prices that people can charge. You can't charge too low because that's an anti-competitive practice that's trying to put your competitors out of business. You can't charge the same price because that's price collusion. You can't charge too much because that's price gouging. So where are we supposed to put the price? Do you notice those are the only possible things? Below, above, same. That's it. That's all you got. Those are how numbers work. So which one is legal? So the problem with laws like that is, first of all, they're not in the Bible, so they're man-made. And secondly, they are efforts at envy captured in law. This is not what's happening here. This is an imposition on the text by people who do not understand business, nor the scriptures, nor dominion. There is no problem with changing money. There is no problem with exchanging currency for profit. There is no problem with providing a service at a profit of transporting animals to a convenient location to sell them. This is not why Jesus is mad. Jesus doesn't flip over tables over capitalism. That is not the problem. Jesus is flipping over tables because this is the temple, and the temple is not a business. The same churches that would typically deride, attack, reform churches for being pharisaical or legalistic would do the practice of the Pharisees and allow their churches to become houses of merchandise. What is Phariseeism? Phariseeism has some good components. For example, they believe in their doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Not everything the Pharisees did was wrong. What did they do that was wrong? Well, the way that most modern evangelicals talk about the Pharisees as being bad is they'll say, the Pharisees cared about tithing mint and cumin. They cared about all the details. And therefore, they missed the point. no. It's not that the details of God's word will make you miss the point. Like, don't read too carefully or you won't understand the Bible. The point is, the Pharisees tithed mint and cumin, but then they did not care for the weightier matters of the law. So have you ever met somebody who scrupulously cares about very minor details and then commits a grievous sin right in front of you? Okay, So that idea 
of caring about very minor details. So another place that Jesus talks about this is he says, he talks about straining at gnats and swallowing camels. What's that about? A camel and a gnat are both unclean animals. The law in the Old Testament forbid the eating of unclean animals. So should the Jews have listened to that law? Yes. Should they have cared about not eating unclean animals? Yes. But, if you're straining at gnats to avoid eating the smallest unclean animal, and you're feasting on a camel, the largest unclean animal, there's something wrong with you. The problem is a disorder. What should you do? You solve the big problems first, and then you solve the little problems. Imagine you are on a boat, and this boat is leaking. And you see the water is flooding in, and so you grab a mop. And your thought is, I'm going to clean up the water with the mop so that we don't have water on the floor in our ship. That is straining at gnats. What you should be doing is stop eating the camel by go over and patch the hole. So the problem is a disorder of operation. Yeah, mop the floor. Yes, strain at gnats. After you stop eating camels, focus on the non-camel eating first. Let's make that a motto. Puritan Reformed Church. Non-camel eating before gnat straining. Good thing it'll help us to sell. Good search engine optimization. We get a lot. So this idea... The Pharisees were wrong in overemphasizing the later details rather than the foundational order. Another thing the Pharisees failed at, they were really good at the fact that they believed that all of the books from Genesis through Malachi, our English translation of the Bible, all those books, all 39 books, they accepted all of them as scripture. Problem. They added the tradition of the elders they added man-made laws. So should we say, you know, the Pharisees believed in the inspiration of the scriptures from Genesis through Malachi. Let's throw that out because then we'll be Pharisees. No, that's not the problem with the Pharisees. What's the problem with the Pharisees? Adding human tradition and man-made laws. Okay? So we don't want to add man-made laws like price gouging. Like viewing money changing and making a profit off of it as evil. That would be Phariseeism. Viewing those things as evil is Phariseeism. You know what else is Phariseeism? Having a store in your church, especially that operates on the Lord's Day. That would be Phariseeism, where you're treating the house of God as a house of merchandise. And it breaks the Sabbath. So, Phariseeism involves a disorder of operation, And Phariseeism involves putting human tradition as equal to or over the Word of God. And also, Phariseeism has this error. It adds things to salvation beyond grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Self-righteousness. Keeping the law as a way of obtaining favor with God. I've had a very fun experience in my life. I say to people, 
Justification is by faith alone. They go, amen. They go, great. So that means if somebody understands the doctrine and thinks it's true, they are saved. That's faith. Faith is just understanding the doctrine revealed in the scriptures and thinking it's true. People go, no. Even the demons believe and tremble. And you go, that's interesting. You are not a Protestant, friend. If you want to add anything besides thinking it's true, you've added something to faith. Now, on the other side, I will preach the law and do my best to say it exactly like it is. And the law will break you. It will break every one of you. It will break me. It will shatter us. Because we will not be able to keep it. The law of God shows you that you are a wretch. You are filthier than you know. You are more disgusting than you know. You are more wicked than you know. You are of zero value in terms of standing before God on your own merits. And preaching that law, which is unkeepable for us fallen human beings, it's going to sound hard. That surprise any of you? That the law of God is hard, hard beyond your ability to keep. So the response there, people will say, to the gospel, they'll say, you are lawless, you are antinomian, you don't care about the law of God. Because you say just easy believism. People just have to understand and believe. It's not easy believism. It's impossible believism. You cannot believe unless the Holy Spirit gives you faith. But I'll tell you what else. It's not cheap grace. You can, call it, you can call that cheap grace. You can say this cheap grace. People say cheap grace. They say, no, 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 no. You've overpriced it. It's free. It's free grace. It's not even cheap grace. It's free grace. So that gets called lawlessness. But when you preach the law, people say you're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. The law is beyond your ability to keep. And the gospel requires nothing of you. And we are required to teach both. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone, not your works. And the law requires you to do everything to the perfection of the inward man. And so you will be called a Pharisee and a legalist. And you will be called lawless. And then you know you got it about right. The problems with the Pharisees. The Pharisees added things to the Word of God. The Pharisees made justification by something other than grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And the Pharisees disordered the operation. Rather than going to the most basic and trying to build up to the top of the tower, they would start at the top of the tower and see if it can float there as they build down to the foundation. The disorder of operation. Straining at gnats while swallowing camels. Now, the concern that Jesus has is not that there's a selling of oxen, sheep, or doves. And not that there are money changers doing business. It's that they're doing it in the temple. So, overwhelmingly, 
you will read commentaries and hear sermons and people talk about the other stuff as the problem. And it's not that. It's that it's in the temple. Why don't people want to teach that? Because if they teach that, they're stuck with the regulated principle. If they teach that, they're stuck with the regulated principle. They're stuck with the idea that you can't do anything with what is God's except what God commands. Because in order to know all the things you shouldn't do in the temple, guess what you need? A list that's infinitely long telling you all the things not to do in the temple. The regulated principle takes that infinitely long list by category and it says, all the things I didn't command you, don't do those things. It's a shorter list. It's a good editorial choice. God had a list that was infinitely long and his copy editor said, you know, this might be difficult for your readers. Maybe you should shorten it with the regulated principle. God thought, it's good. Thanks, Holy Spirit. Let's do the thing. That is what the regulated principle is about. Now, this is the Passover. The Passover of the Jews is at hand. We've come out of the idea of the Lamb of God. You remember when we talked about the Lamb of God and I went to the Passover in Exodus 12 and I said, hey, look, the Passover, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Passover Lamb. He paid for our sins. We're covered with His blood. We avoid the wrath of God. So in light of the fact that Christ covers us so that we do not suffer the wrath of God, we approach and seek holy service at the bronze wash basin. So they went to Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 15, verses 5 through 8, teaches that the Passover requires, after the initial Passover, coming to a tabernacle or the temple after the temple was built. And so there's the place that God has appointed, and that's where that's supposed to occur. So they go into the temple, point three. These people are found in the temple, sellers of religious wares for convenience of worship, and money changers for ease of giving to the temple and paying the temple tax. This shows us that the fact that Jesus is opposed to all these things gives us a sense of the limits of church authority. Now, the limits of church authority teach us this. Anybody who is doing something that God has commanded is acting as a steward of God. What's a steward? A steward is a household servant who runs the house the way that the owner wants it run on the authority of the owner. The steward does not get to run the house the way that the steward wants to on the authority of the steward. A steward is a servant. So when we talk about church government, we talk about the limits of the authority of the church, we talk about the idea of ministerial authority. A minister is a servant. And so the idea is ministerial authority means you only have the authority that the master gives. You only have the authority that the master gives. So, the use of the temple by the Jews, they are stewards of the household of God. You know who are called stewards of the household of God in the New Testament? The officers. So, whereas the priests were stewards of the temple, physical, officers are stewards of the temple, spiritual. And so, that was true back then. There was a physical symbol of the temple. But now, what we have is simply the visible church and the invisible church. And so we have this idea of the limits of church authority. 
A steward is an administrator of a household, and a steward is not at liberty to do anything in the household except what he has been authorized to do. So if you're a steward in office, it means that your office doesn't come from you, it comes from God. There's a term historically that has been used to refer to this idea that we need to look to God for what the church government should be. First of all, the regulated principle, which is whatever is not commanded is forbidden. But applied to government, this term just divinum or just divinum, which means divine right or divine law. So the authority of church officers and the form of government must be based upon the divine right of the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of the church for the government to be according to the pattern, the form that he has appointed and not some human invention. Now, this idea is plainly given in the scriptures, but it also follows, obviously, from a few points. Is it true that God defines the difference between good and evil? Does that mean he defines the difference between good and evil church government? Okay. Is scripture sufficient to know the difference between good and evil? Okay, then it's going to be sufficient to know the difference between good and bad government. Is it the case that a work that we do is either a good work or a not good work, an evil work? Based upon if it's authorized by God or not. So for example, idleness, which you might try to say there's good works and bad works and there's idleness. Idleness is defined as a bad work. If you're just idle, you're wasting time. We're commanded to redeem the time. You have to put the time every second to good work. Sleeping is a good work. We're commanded to sleep. So, we have to be doing something that God has told us to do. You can be enjoying food. You can be doing work to make money. You can be fellowshipping and having a desire to counsel into people's lives. There's, there's all sorts of things to do. There's, there's feasting together and giving thanks to God. There's, there's drinking wine to make the heart merry to the glory of God. Right? These are all things that are commanded in the scriptures. And they're good works when they're done with thanks. Work is either good or not good based upon if it's authorized by God or not. Man may not take authority to themselves and must obtain authority that is granted by God by the means that God has appointed. So, if I come into your house and try to take something out of your house, that's stealing. I don't have authorization to do that. It's sin. If, however, I use, let's say I say, hey, I want to buy that book from you, and you say, I'll sell it to you for 20 bucks, and I take $20 out of my pocket and hand it to you, and you hand me the book, I've taken it out of your house, haven't I? But I've done it in the way that's authorized. It's the use of authority in the way that God has authorized. It's the authority by the means that God has appointed. So taking an office to yourself in church or state, taking an office to yourself in a household, taking property as an individual, any of those things without authorization is usurpation. But men may not take authority to themselves and must obtain authority that's granted by God by the means God has appointed. Liberty, this is the next principle, liberty is maintained only by being careful to honor all authority God has given and no authority that God has not given only way to maintain liberty is liberty results in chaos or tyranny you try to have either without the other in terms of authority and rejecting false authority you're going to end up with chaos or tyranny 
Liberty is maintained only by being careful to honor all lawful authority. Without any lawful authority, there is chaos, there is anarchy, there is pre-flood world. Pre-flood world is basically Mad Max. Now, I haven't seen that, so apparently I think there's probably bad stuff in it, but anyways. Liberty is maintained only by being careful to honor all authority given by God and not by accepting any authority that comes from someplace else. You have to reject unlawful authority. So chapter 20 of the Confession talks about that. So I've got for you little things after each of these points for you to go study. If you go read a chapter of the Confession, you're going to find stuff taught there that helps you to really see how this all works. So, the term Justivinum became popularized during the time of the Westminster Assembly. Go to page 3. There was a book called Justivinum Regiminus Ecclesiastes. That's how you say it. Now, that's translated as the divine right of church government. And so this was written because the principal debate that occurred at the time of the Westminster Assembly. And I want you to think about this. Think about how long the Westminster Confession is, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, the directory of worship. All of the debate was about the form of government. This is how unified the Reformed world was in Britain at this time. They were all like, yeah, 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 sure, the Confession. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larger catechism, shorter catechism. Of course, of course. Directory of worship, absolutely. Let's debate about the government. This was the level of agreement, which is why you look at the Westminster Standards, you compare them to the London Baptist Confession, and what you've got is different government plus baptism. It's written in 1689. The Savoy Declaration is the same except different government. There were Episcopalians at the Westminster Assembly, and they just didn't like the idea of there being elected elders plural. That was the disagreement there. So this is what you've got. This is the level of agreement that had occurred by the work of the Holy Spirit pulling the church together by teaching a faithful ministry through the Reformation. So this book, amongst a number of other books, there was a lot of ink spilled about church government from 1643 to 1653. A lot. You heard me say a lot. A lot. So, why? Why care about all of that? Which is more important? Doctrine, worship, and government, or how to use a church building? Obviously, doctrine, worship, and government. Any one of them. Jesus flipped over tables and whipped people because of a misuse of the church building. Do you understand the degree to which he had a zeal for right doctrine, worship, and government? That when he saw people using something that was devoted for the service of God as a merchant's tool that he started whipping people and throwing tables over in public. The details matter. Proper stewardship matters. You're never going to reach the point of being as manly as Jesus to be able to throw over tables when there's a misuse of church property. 
unless you first care about the doctrine, worship, and government that's supposed to be put into place. Because being a steward of church property is way below those things. It's a sub-point of a sub-point under church government. You go, church government, we should have deacons. They should manage property. They should use the property for these purposes only and not for having a shop. That's how that would be organized in a book. It's a sub-point of a sub-point about church government. And Jesus flips over tables and whips people. Now, why does he have the right to do this? Because they're trespassing on God's property, and he's a representative of God. They're trespassing on God's property, and he's a representative of God. He has an office given to him as the Christ, wherein he is authorized to do this. So can you go around and just start walking into United Methodist churches, breaking stained glass windows of Jesus, and flipping over tables, and saying, shut down that coffee shop right now. That name Hebrews is cute and everything, but stop. No, you are not authorized to do that. Because you do not have a jurisdiction there. If we do this, you need to immediately, without delaying a single Lord's Day, bring public objection and charges if it's not immediately repented of. And if somebody were to come in here and they were trying to do that without authorization the people who are a part of the church and the officers of the church would have the right to use force to remove the person. So when somebody tries to come in and steal or misuse or abuse or disrupt the order of things, we have the right to use force. Jesus used force to defend property. He flipped over tables and used a whip for the defense of property. Has this enlivened your view of the manliness of Jesus? I'm called to be a steward of the mysteries of God. And those mysteries are the doctrine that was hidden that's been revealed, the type of worship that we have in the New Covenant, and the form of the church government. The Westminster Assembly did a lot of work on those things. And in the Directory of Public Worship, they gave two verses at the very beginning to talk about the worship. And they were 1 Corinthians 14, 40, and 26. And it says, let all things be done decently and in order, and let all things be done unto edification. When they wrote a form of Presbyterian church government, this was the verse they started the whole thing with. Ezekiel 43, 11. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, or the house, and its arrangement its goings out and its comings in, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design, its whole form, and all its ordinances and perform them. Ezekiel, a big chunk of the book of Ezekiel, is a bunch of directions about the new temple that's going to be more glorious. See, what had already happened is there was all this prophecy about the destruction of the current temple. It got destroyed in 587 B.C. Then it gets rebuilt. And so, when we have the rebuilding that occurs in 537 by the decree of Cyrus, this is the design they're ultimately supposed to go for. And the design in Ezekiel 
is the design of the temple that's on the Temple Mount. It's the Herodian Temple. It's this glorious, white, shining temple. And so that's, you want to know what the outline, what the design of that was? Go read Ezekiel. You'll read the outline, the design of that temple. That's the temple that Jesus was saying, not one stone will be left on top of the other within the generation of the people that are with me here. That design, why does God care so much about the design of the temple? The temple is a symbol for Christ. The temple is a symbol for the church, the body of Christ. Is it stones and showbread and tables that God is concerned about? Or is it the order of the church and the beauty of the bride of Christ? I'll give you the answer. It's the second one. And so when we have an order and a form of government, a part of the beauty of the bride is the order and decency of her behavior. And her public courts are for her what it is for a woman to go out into a public occasion where she is most dressed up. The public courts are the most formal, and they ought to be in good order, and they better follow the protocol that has been established by the king. So we should care about the temple. We should care about the church. And the way we show the kind of zeal that Jesus showed is by caring about the doctrine, worship, and government of the church and how the property gets handled that the church has. And that it gets used to the things that God has appointed. We must be zealous about these things. The end of the chunk here says, when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. I mean, can't you see the people who owned those animals just like freaking out and running out trying to catch those animals? And the money changers, when Jesus flips over the table and that money just goes scattering across the floor, can't you see them going, ah, and running to go pick up their coins? Like, think of the level of chaos, shame, and disorder that Jesus created there. He created disorder for the sake of creating order. And he caused them to look indecent for the sake of seeking to create decency. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He drove them out of the temple with the animals. The cords were used on the people and the animals. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Why didn't he break the cages of the doves? Why didn't he whip the doves? He whipped the doves that hurt them. He didn't want to break the cages because he wasn't trying to steal their property. So with them, he took a lesser step and he just looked at them sternly after whipping some guys and some animals and said, take these out of here. It was very effective. So he didn't want to damage the property. He didn't want to hurt the animals. He wasn't trying to cause permanent injury to any of the people. He was trying to Make them retreat away from their property and to not misuse the house of God. Verse 16, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. That's the rebuke. 
then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Sorry, the majority text. Zeal for your house will eat me up. Does your version of Christian manhood have a place for a court of whips to defend property? What is wrong with making the house of God a house of merchandise? You don't have a reason why this is wrong unless you believe in the regulative principle of government. That unless God has authorized it, you're forbidden. The household is authorized to sell stuff for profit. So is the individual. The church is not authorized to be a merchant. The state is not authorized to be a merchant. State-owned industry and church-owned industry are both great evils. The house and the individual are where that belongs. This text, zeal for your house will eat me up, is taken from Psalm 69, verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I hope that this makes plain for you that Jesus cares about the regulated principle and that he is zealous for the property rights of God. Comments, questions, objections for the voting members and those with speaking rights.